0: Father, indeed, please give us the mind of Christ. May we think his thoughts after him. May we have righteousness and goodness flowing forth and bearing fruit in our lives. Conform us to his image. Make us like him. And as we come to your word this morning, open up our eyes. that We might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I can remember as a small child always being excited whenever they would play the Wizard of Oz on television. I don't know how many of you remember this, but a long time ago, Um, People didn't have, even before they had VCRs, okay? I'm I'm that old to remember that. Nobody had VCRs. Not many people had cable back then. And if you were going to see an old classic, you had to see it on, on television. And you'd have to wait and you'd have to, you know, set your clock, mark the date, and then be there to watch it. And every now and again, they would show Gone with the Wind or The Sound of Music. And usually about once a year, you'd see The Wizard of Oz. And as a a boy, I can remember being absolutely amped to see the film every time that it came on. But I also remember being more than a little bit terrified by it. Um, As a kid, for some reason, I was always afraid of the Wicked Witch of the West. Is anybody here old enough to remember that? Am I the only person who was? Okay. I I thought for some reason, maybe it's because it's almost 100 years old now, but she was just terrifying Uh, The characters would be going along on the yellow brick road and then she would appear from out of nowhere and it would be completely, you know, mortifying. But the one person that, that you're really not scared of when you're watching that movie and that I wasn't really scared of was the wizard himself. Because as we all know, it turns out that the wizard was actually no wizard at all. Sure, there was a lot of smoke and fire and loud sound effects. But it was all just a show. There were, the reality behind the wizard was actually just this small, diminutive man behind a curtain, posing as a wizard who has great powers, when in actuality, he was just a complete fraud. His actual powers were nothing compared to what the witches were. And when it came down to it, he could do nothing to protect his kingdom from the witch. Nor could he get Dorothy home. He was useless because he was powerless. No real authority, which is why the witch roamed free and nobody could really stop her. What happens in a church when the people come to believe that there's no real authority over them? When they see, for example, other members sinning with impunity and the leaders and maybe the rest of the congregation stand by and don't do anything about it. Or maybe they see false teachers advancing through the congregation and neither the leaders nor the congregation have the nerve to step up and to oppose the false teachers. We know what happens in that kind of a situation because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 where we find that just as leaven spreads quickly through the whole lump of dough, so also does unchecked sin spread quickly through an entire congregation. This is why Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, to rebuke an elder publicly so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. If you let it go unchecked, it's just going to spread through the congregation. So without that kind of active resistance, you can expect sin and error to spread like gangrene. But what is a congregation to do if they they think that their leaders are all fire and smoke and special effects, but no real authority to be reckoned with? That's exactly what Paul is dealing with in the text before us this morning. If you haven't already, please open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, focusing on verses 1 through 6. Now if you've read through 2 Corinthians, you know that Paul's tone changes really dramatically in chapter 10. Chapters 1 through 7, Paul talks about the reconciliation that has happened between him and the Corinthians after his painful visit and after the harsh letter that he sent to them in chapters 8 through 9 Paul expresses his confidence that they're gonna come through with their contribution to the poor Saints in Jerusalem but in chapters 10 through 13 it sounds like Paul has a bit of a chip on his shoulder his rhetoric becomes really sharp as he begins to confront false teachers who are still influencing the church The false teachers are directly challenging Paul's authority. And some are concluding, some people in the church are concluding that there's nothing to Paul but just a weak man behind a curtain. And so Paul spends these final chapters of this book disabusing them of that notion. And in these six verses of chapter 10, Paul will begin asserting his authority and correcting their error. And so you're going to see correction on two different kinds of levels here. You're going to see correction through appeal in verses 1 through 2, and then correction through warfare in verses 3 through 6. So correction through appeal, and then correction through warfare. So first of all, correction through appeal. Everybody look at verses 1 and 2. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Just a reminder here at the outset, you see Paul in verse 1 is speaking in the first person singular, but in verse 2... He begins speaking in the first person plural. So when you start here, Paul often will be in this mode where he talks about we and us, but he means I and me. He's using that special um, apostolic we when he's talking like that. So he's really talking about himself here when you see these first person plurals. But what becomes really clear in these two verses is that Paul is dealing with some outsiders who've made inroads into the Corinthian congregation and have set themselves up as rivals to Paul, and they're disdainfully comparing themselves to Paul. And it looks like they've had a good amount of success at lifting themselves up over Paul, in in the eyes of at least some within the congregation. And so this has forced Paul, at this point, in the letter, to take them on directly and to answer criticism that he is weak and servile, that he lacks apostolic power, and that his refusal to accept uh, monetary support from the Corinthians is some kind of uh, weakness on his part. Commentator David Garland is describing these opponents in this way, and I'll just say this. It's a- I found myself really relying on Garland's commentary in this, um, um, this, this sermon. It, it was a really helpful exposition, so I'll be relying on it throughout. This is a giant footnote o- over the sermon, but I want to quote to you here uh, from, from David Garland. He says, Paul states that they are guilty of measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves. They being these uh, rivals who's, who've infiltrated the church with the result that they commend themselves out of all proportion. They are also poaching on Paul's mission field, being ignorant of the true source of authority, the Lord, and seduce the Corinthians as Satan did Eve, by preaching another Jesus, spirit and gospel, and boasting unduly. He explicitly brands them as false apostles, deceitful workers, and emissaries of Satan who have only disguised themselves as apostles of Christ. It's really fascinating because Paul never actually names these people. You know, in some books, there'll be false teachers that he will refer to by name, call them out. But he never does that in this book. He just refers to them in verse 2 as some who suspect us as walking according to the flesh. David Garland goes on. He says, quote, They apparently are proud of their Jewish heritage, skillful in the rhetorical arts, and boastful of various accomplishments, visions, and revelations that they insist provide proof that Christ speaks in them. From Paul's point of view, however, they are aligned with the forces of evil, are thoroughly evil themselves, and should be blocked from having any influence over the community. End quote. So it's clear That there are some false teachers, false apostles who have infiltrated the Corinthian church and they've set themselves up as rivals to Paul and they appear to be gaining ground with the people. What I want you to notice here is how Paul responds. He begins responding with a kind of a sardonic tone. He says this in verse 1, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you, went away. And you have to skip forward to verse 10 to pick up on Paul's sarcasm here. Because in verse 10, Paul quotes these false teachers. And we learn that they were the ones who were saying that, quote, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. That's their criticism of Paul. So in verse 1, Paul is sarcastically riffing on their allegations saying, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. His, His sarcasm reveals that they are looking down on him as someone who is only bold when he is away and writing letters at a safe distance from them. And he's having these letters delivered by others, but he's not there. That's when he's bold with them. And so... Um, to to them he looks kind of weak Oh, when you're with us no confrontation but then when you're gone you send us these letters and a lot of people today have this impression that Paul was this harsh and uncompromising figure who was difficult to get along with the Corinthians perspective at least in this text is actually the opposite of that it's as if they're saying look you talk a big game when you're gone Paul but when you're here with us you don't act that way you're mousy and weak. Lots of fire and smoke in your letters, Paul. But we see the real man behind the curtain when you're with us, and we're not impressed. And so Paul says in verse 2 that some of the Corinthians suspect, <clears throat> suspect us of walking according to the flesh. When they say flesh, they're not talking about the sinful nature per se, but they're talking about fallenness. The fact that Paul is subject to weakness and trials and suffering. I think that that's what they're talking about. And you know what, how the Corinthians feel about weakness and trials and suffering. They don't view that favorably. They look disdainfully at somebody who's you know, saying that they've got all this power as an apostle, yet they're suffering, weakness, trials. They may very, uh, very well be carping about You know, Paul's bodily weakness that he mentions later in this book. He calls it a thorn in the flesh in chapter 12. So, Paul looks physically weak. His speaking, we know, is, he has said, is unimpressive. And so, he's not projecting this aura of success, at least in the sense that the world would recognize it. And so, of course, In that kind of a situation where they've got a certain set of standards that they think makes somebody look impressive as a teacher and a leader, they've got a certain set of standards that that don't correspond to biblical standards. And so, of course, they're going to be more impressed by these interlopers who've come into the congregation who look and sound far more impressive and powerful than Paul. These guys are the ones who, you know, they look like they have the truth just because of the way... They they present themselves. They look good. They have the golden tongue. Who needs the Apostle Paul when you have these other good-looking guys instead? I don't know if you've seen it yet, but there's this new documentary streaming on Discovery Plus right now about the Hillsong Church in Australia, which now has branches all over the world with I don't know how many thousands of members all over the place. I haven't watched it yet, but I did watch the trailer over the weekend, and the trailer shows the former pastor of Hillsong in New York City. He's now been disgraced and removed from his position because of an, an adultery, sexual immorality. But it shows him in this trailer walking around and cavorting with celebrities. And in one photo, he's walking along the street in shorts with no shirt on. And this guy has movie star good looks. He's really chiseled, tanned. And he's got these shorts on, no shirt, and his shorts are so low, he's barely covering himself. And this is how the guy presented himself when he was still a pastor. And a couple of nights ago, I was reading one writer who was commenting, she said this, that, this is clearly a man who cares a lot about his body and about his presentation. Did no one think that this, this was maybe a red flag for a pastor? Long before the guy broke his marriage vows and committed adultery, it was very clear that he was way more concerned about his looks and reputation and about being cool and associating with celebrities. He was concerned about all of that in worldly terms, than more about that than he was about actually following the way of Christ. Why didn't anybody notice We have to be very careful, brothers and sisters. There are certain kinds of people who can get very far in church leadership just by being good-looking, charismatic speaker, can glad hand really well with a lot of people. And if those worldly characteristics are what you value, then don't be surprised if worldliness is what you get. If you have a guy who's obviously racing hard after the look and the feels of the world, it ought to be a clear sign of a deeper problem. Be discerning. Paul says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Chapter 11. You shouldn't be surprised when his servants do the same. We don't measure success in ministry by cool bands, hip sneakers, fog machines, all that stuff that's going on. We measure success by faithfulness to Christ's word. That's it. And if that is absent from a leader or a teacher or a ministry, then you need to run that guy off if he can't be corrected. And if you can't run run him off, you need to run yourself off. Don't get under the spell of false teachers like this. So Paul is now going to confront this foolishness, but he does it in a way that's unexpected. He says in verse 1, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul could have brought down the hammer, but he doesn't do that here in verse 1. Instead, he speaks to them, I think, in a fatherly way. He's speaking to them like a good dad who sees his son getting into some kind of foolishness or error. And nevertheless, he still loves his son. He wishes to appeal to his son first in gentleness to persuade his conscience to turn away from waywardness. And so Paul is also doing the same thing. He's appealing with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ for the Corinthians to wake up and to recognize what's going on in their own congregation. So verse 2, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some. The sense here really isn't of begging, it's just making a request, asking the congregation to take up their responsibility to deal with the false teachers in their midst. Paul's still planning to visit Corinth and he wants the congregation already to have dealt with this by the time he arrives. So he's appealing to them gently to get it done. When I get there, I don't wanna have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some. I don't want to have to bring the hammer down. I want you to, you to do this. You take care of this. So there's, in verses 1 through 2, this a correction through appeal. He's appealing to them to, to take care of this. But now in verses 3 through 6, you also see him speaking of a correction that happens through warfare. Everybody look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war According to the flesh. So in verse 2, Paul says that some people in Corinth were suspecting him of walking according to the flesh. Which means, you know, walking in weakness. Now in verse 3, he concedes that he does walk in weakness. But again, he's not talking about walking in sin when he says walking according to the flesh. But about walking in weakness and trials and suffering. And so there's this very real thing. About Paul's presence that makes him look unimpressive. Whether it was his thorn in the flesh, maybe it was his unrefined speaking skills, or something else, the Corinthians thought he looked weak. And Paul says, I am. It's true. But though I'm walking in the flesh, I'm not waging war according to the flesh, which means. Even though I'm walking in weakness, I'm not waging war with weakness. What does he mean by waging war? Obviously, he's not talking about literal war. He's speaking metaphorically here. So, waging war is a reference to how he conducts his ministry as an apostle. And it's often a fight because there are opponents in ministry. Paul wants to make sure that the Corinthians understand that even though his flesh is weak, he's not weak. He's not relying on flimsy human resources that are devoid of any divine power to carry out his ministry. Nor is he resorting to shameful and underhanded ways to achieve victory in these conflicts. Which means that even though he is weak in so many ways... It would be a grave mistake to think that his ministry is weak, because it's not weak. This word that's translated as waging war, it's this Greek term, stratouametha. Our, our English word strategy comes from this Greek word group. But in this context, the term introduces and describes the three stages of campaign uh, of a war campaign in ancient siege warfare. It's difficult to see here in English, but it's really clear in the original that Paul is spelling out three stages in three dependent clauses that show up in verses 5 and 6. So the three stages of uh, a, a siege and campaign warfare would go like this. It would involve destroying defensive fortifications, taking captives, and punishing resistance when the city is finally brought into submission. Those would be the three stages. And Paul is saying that even though he may be walking in a way that appears weak to these people, he fights with strength. He's doing all three of these things. He's destroying defensive fortifications. He's taking captives. And he's punishing resistance. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now remember... Paul's warfare is a metaphor for his ministry, which often involves conflict with opponents. And Paul says that his weapons in this fight are not weak. He's not charging hell with a water pistol here. It's not like he's trying to start a land war in China with slingshots and a couple hundred troops. Paul is armed to the teeth, he says. He's got nukes in his back pocket. In fact, where the ESV says that his weapons are divinely powerful, the original says literally his weapons are powerful to God, which means powerful in the eyes of God. It was a Hebrew idiom for expressing the superlative. If the weapons are powerful in the eyes of God, then there could be no, couldn't could be, possibly be any more po- uh, powerful weapon. This is the ultimate weapon. These are the weapons that Paul brings to the fight. He is indeed spiritually armed to the teeth. That's what he's trying to say. He says that his, his weapons are powerful enough to destroy strongholds. Now, when you think of a stronghold in the ancient world, you need to think of a stone tower, maybe of a, a wall surrounding this, high stone walls, wide enough to where warriors could walk around on a walkway on top of it and defend a city. And the job of the army laying siege to that stronghold was to breach the wall somehow. Usually this would involve siege engines, which would allow soldiers to scale the walls, maybe, you know, jump over um, and enter into the city. But Paul says he has weapons strong enough to tear the walls down. So don't think 2 Kings 18 through 19, where the Assyrians are laying siege to Jerusalem, but they never get in to the city. The walls are standing. Think of Joshua, chapter 6, where God gives divine power to the voices of his people to make the walls of Jericho fall down flat. That's what Paul has. He's not charging hell with a water pistol, he's got lightsabers and death stars in his arsenal. Paul said this in chapter 6. He says, he's talking about his ministry. Using the same kind of imagery, he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of Christ, servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Sounds like weakness, doesn't it? Like walking in the flesh, doesn't it? By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. But then look what he says, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, weakness and power all at once. And so this warfare, in this warfare metaphor for Paul's ministry, the weapons are mighty in the sight of God. These weapons are a metaphor for Paul's preaching of God's word. Paul doesn't literally have a sword in one hand and a shield in the other. That's not the point. He's got the sword of the spirit in one hand and the shield of faith in the other. He's waging war against God's enemies with the word of God. And there is no fortress and no enemy that can withstand the word of God. If Paul's opponents think they have built themselves ramparts and battlements high enough and strong enough to keep Paul out, they are gravely mistaken about this. They're not going to be able to resist when he shows up. I love old westerns. There's one that came out about 25 years ago. Some of you have seen um, about Wyatt Earp called Tombstone. And there's this famous scene where Wyatt Earp walks into this saloon, and nobody else is in the saloon except for this one poker player. And this one poker player is just this big bully. He's constantly threatening people I'm gonna shoot you, I'm gonna beat you. You He's he's just browbeating everybody that comes in, and so nobody comes in anymore. So the saloon's about to, you know, it looks like it's about to go out of business. Wyatt Earp walks in, looks really unassuming, but there's this inevitable confrontation with Earp and this bully poker dealer. And Wyatt challenges this guy to a fight. The bully reaches for his gun. Oh, I'm going to, you know, like he's going to shoot him. He says, skin that smoke wagon. See what happens. The guy says, I'm getting real tired. Now, White goes, whap, slaps him in the face. He says, jerk that pistol. Go to work. The guy's too scared to move. He slaps him again. I said, throw down, boy. This was the line that reminded me of this text. Because Paul says that he's casting down the battlements throw down boy slaps him again you're gonna do something he's gonna stand there and bleed it's this great scene (laughs) it turns out the guy who looked strong turned out to be weak and the guy who looked weak turned out to be strong wider brought way more into that fight than anyone had anticipated and this guy couldn't stand before him now The truth is, in this text, Paul actually doesn't want to come to Corinth. He's not trying to get a physical confrontation here. He actually doesn't want to come to Corinth and throw down with the opponents at all. But Paul can throw down with the best of them when he has to. And his weapons are powerful before God, literally to throw down strongholds. And here's the thing. You and I have those same weapons in our hands. We're not apostles. We're not receiving direct revelation from God like like Paul was. But we are spirit-filled Christians. And we do have the word of God in our hands and in our hearts. And we have everything that we need to cast down the strongholds. So the question is, what are these strongholds symbolizing in this this battle that we're waging? Well, look at verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In verse 4, Paul says that his weapons are powerful enough literally to cast down strongholds and now he uses the same language of casting down in verse 5 to say that he's casting down arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the the knowledge of God. So it's very clear that Paul's war is not on people, but on the arguments. Paul is not trying to destroy people. He's trying to destroy their teaching. He's aiming his weapons at the walls of error and false teaching that have been erected around God's people. These walls consist of of intellectual arguments that people construct to shuffle off the truth of the gospel. These are conceptual barriers that they erect to rationalize their rebellion against Paul's authority and thus against God's authority. It's interesting that the ESV says that Paul is tearing down every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. Literally, it's every height that's raised up. And it's a metaphor, again, for a raised rampart or a high wall built up as a defensive fortification. But in context, it's clear that the defensive fortification stands for false teaching. The things that we tell ourselves, we allow ourselves to believe in order to justify foolish and sinful behavior. Paul says that his weapons are powerful to lay those walls down flat, flat on the ground, and it's a play on words. Whatever they raise up, he's going to cast down. I don't know if you saw last week, but the Biden administration released two documents making policy recommendations concerning the care of children in our country who are dealing with feelings of gender confusion. And you can guess what the recommendations are if you've been paying attention to the culture. This is the recommendations coming from the current presidential administration. They're recommending putting minor children on puberty blockers to keep their bodies from maturing and becoming fully developed. They are allowing infusion of opposite-sex hormones on minor children. They're even calling for the allowance of sex change surgeries in minor children where it's medically recommended. And to make it worse, I couldn't believe I was reading this. This is two official policy documents coming out of the administration. To make it worse, the the policy even allows the possibility that children might be removed from their parents in cases where the parents refuse to endorse a child's transgender identity and the barbaric medical interventions that go along with it. It's an absolute, outrage. And it's not based on science. It's based on worldly propaganda. Children's bodies being sacrificed for somebody else's sick political ideology. You say, okay, that sounds bad, but I thought this text was about false teaching within the church, not about errors occurring outside the church. I mean, that, 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 what does that have to do with us? Well, has everything to do with us, because often what happens is that the errors outside of the church find their way into the church. In 2015, one of the earliest evangelical books on transgenderism came out, and it was titled Understanding Gender Dysphoria. The author of that book wrote the cover story for Christianity Today to explain to all evangelicals the whole Bruce Jenner thing when that happened in 2015. This book was reviewed by the Gospel Coalition as a step forward in Christian engagement with gender issues. And yet this book says that if you have a gender-confused child, cross-dressing that child might be the best prescription for them. For adults dealing with transgender feelings, this book argues that sex change surgery might be the best prescription for them. The author of this book, who I'm imitating Paul, I'm not naming him. The author of this book... Uh, came, was invited to speak on campus at Southern Seminary. Heath Lambert was here at the time and invited him, knew that he had a different perspective from most of the people in the room, but everyone's jaw dropped when Heath asked him. So you believe in certain scenarios it'd be right for people to have sex change surgeries who are dealing with these feelings? This guy said yes, and everybody's like, These are false teachings being sold inside the evangelical movement and finding their way into congregation after congregation. I'm going to be having a conversation this week with a a teenage student in a different state in a church you, you don't know long from here, but whose pastor asked me to talk to her because she's going to a school where she identifies as a boy and where this is allowed with affirmation and encouragement from the school against the will and without the knowledge of the parents. If you ask these false teachers what they're doing, they're just accommodating the world. And if you think these false teachers woke ideologies are only a problem out there and never a threat inside a congregation, you're wrong. Paul is telling us what we are to do when we encounter them. We are supposed to use the word of God to tear down every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are supposed to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. That means that we wage war not against people, but against the lies that are enslaving them. We are to proclaim the truth of God to people who are shackled by self-destructive lies. We release them by making those lying thoughts obey Christ. That means that if I'm talking to a young girl and her parents about her struggles with gender issues... I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to grieve with them. I'm going to try to understand them. And with the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I'm going to hear them. And then I'm going to open up the word of God with them and go to war for them. I'm going to say that in the beginning, God made them male and female. God's beautiful and distinct design of male and female bodies is a good thing that He has created for our flourishing. God made, I'm going to say, God made your female body, and your body isn't lying to you about who you are. If your mind feels at odds with that, it's because your mind has fallen. It's often mistaken. It's the same, it's the case with all of us. We're off, all of us have fallen minds. We're often mistaken about ourselves. I'm going to encourage her to trust Christ, to cling to him for power, to overcome whatever dysphoria she's feeling. And I'm going to encourage her to resolve whatever conflicts she feels in a way that doesn't destroy, but affirms what God has revealed through her body about who she is. That's what I'm going to say to In other words, I'm going to fight for her in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And I'm going to fight for her parents and put as many weapons as I can in their hands to work on pulling down the strongholds of sin and error and false teaching, threatening their daughter. That's how we fight. We don't fight against people, but for people. We try to destroy the lies that are enslaving them. But there's one more thing here. Look at verse 6. What if these false teachers infiltrating, disturbing the church, don't repent? What if others follow up after them, clinging to this false teaching? They don't repent after being confronted with the word of God. Paul says being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What does he mean by punishing disobedience? Again, this is not physical confrontation. The only punishment that we have here is excommunication. That's what Paul instructed the Corinthians to do in 1 Corinthians 5, you'll remember. To deliver the unrepentant sinner over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that their spirit might be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. That's what he's ready to do here when their obedience is complete And by that, I think he's trying to say he wants them to do what they're supposed to do as a congregation. He doesn't want to preempt the congregation's discipline. He wants them to do it themselves so that they can be in concert with him when he arrives. He's ready to punish every disobedience when their obedience is complete. So you're seeing two modes of correction here. A correction through an appeal... And Paul starts describing correction through warfare. He is an apostle, is prepared for that warfare, but I think any person following him has to be ready for that warfare. So let me say three things in conclusion as you think about applying this to your life. First thing is this. God calls churches to mind the boundaries when it comes to doctrine. Doctrine. To me, that's one of the clear things that's in this text. Think about this. Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said that he had appointed Paul as his chosen instrument to bear Christ's name before the Gentiles. Paul has an authority as an apostle that very few people who have ever lived could claim. He could have brought the confrontation with these false teachers himself, and yet... He still wants the congregation to deal with these false teachers before he even gets there. Why is that? It's because the congregation's responsibility is to mind the boundaries when it comes to doctrine. The congregation, led by faithful elders, is supposed to recognize false doctrines when they hear them and confront them. This is what Jesus commanded us to do in Matthew chapter 18. It's what Paul commanded the Corinthians to do. 1 Corinthians 5. That's what Paul commanded the Galatians to do to do in Galatians 1. It's what he's telling the Corinthians to do again now in 2 Corinthians 10. I don't want to have to have this congregation when I get there, this confrontation when I get there. I want you to have already done it when I get there. Second thing is this. Our main weapon in confronting false teaching is the word of God. That's it. When Paul describes the full armor of God in Ephesians 6, there is only one offensive weapon that's listed there. The sword of the spirit, which is what? It's the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reason that Paul is confident that he can tear down strongholds and take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus is because he knows he has the living and active word of God. We're not apostles, but we have the word of God too in scripture. Every word of it is God breathed. This word has a self-authenticating power that overcomes every argument and teaching raised against it through the Holy Spirit. Is there a time for apologetics, defending the integrity and authenticity of the word of God? Yes, there is. But you can open up this word and speak this word into people's lives, and it has a self-authenticating power that breaks down strongholds that they can't stop. When God decides to powerfully confront someone with his word, there's no one who can stay his hand. He will overcome all opposition with his word. That's why we have to be people of the word. It has to be our daily bread. It has to be the means by which we tear down the strongholds. That's that's what we have to offer to the world. Third thing is this. When it comes to tearing down strongholds, we've got to tear, tear down the strongholds of our own heart with the Word. The truth is that arguments and speculations against the knowledge of God aren't always out there. They're sometimes in here. And sometimes they are in our own hearts. Anybody here find themselves dealing with doubt, anxieties, fears? Anger, entrenched patterns of sin that are flowing out of entrenched patterns of sinful thinking. I'm dealing with that. How are you fighting against that in the moments that the confrontation comes to you? There are things going on inside your own heart that need to be confronted. How are you going to do that? You're going to do it with the word of God you are going to have to preach the word to yourself and to take your own thoughts captive to make them obedient to Christ. I start having, If I start having physical difficulties, I start dealing with anxiety. You know what I have to do in those moments? I have to say, Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. I've got to remind myself, I've got a lying thought in my head creating sinful attitudes of fear in my heart. How how am I going to deal with that? I've got to attack that with the word of God, and I've got to make it obedient to Jesus. I can't do it myself, but these weapons are divinely powerful. They destroy these strongholds. They really do change us and enable us to be different. They transform us into the image of Christ. The Bible says. So you've got to aim these weapons at your own heart and then be willing to help others as well. Listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, all this maybe sounds strange to you. I don't know. Um, look, the Bible says that we're all sinners. No, nobody here is perfect, not, not, not even close to it. But the Bible also says that God sent his own son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And that his son's name is Jesus. And he died on a cross and took the penalty that we deserve for our sin, death. And then God raised him up after three days and offers us eternal life. The same life that is manifest in Jesus is offered to us. He will raise us up from the dead and give us eternal life. We get salvation from sin and the promise of eternal life not by working for it or earning it with good works. We get it by receiving it as a free gift by faith, which means you turn away from your sin and you trust in Jesus. The Bible says if you do that, you will be saved. And so today, if you haven't done that, you need to repent of your sin and to believe and be saved. And God can tear down every stronghold in your heart. Let me pray for you. Father, use your word to change us and transform us into the image of Christ. I pray that you would use your word today and every day in the lives of these, your people, to to tear down strongholds of unbelief. I pray that you would arm them in a way to go to war with the sin in their own heart. Help us not to be passive, but to be actively engaged in the struggle to tear these strongholds down. And I pray that you would give us tender hearts with the meekness and gentleness of Christ, appealing to others who are enslaved by false teachings and idolatries. I pray that you would give us tender love and hearts towards them and boldness to bring the word to them. And I pray that you would give us fruitfulness to see people emerging from the ruins alive and well. Father, use us in this great work. Make us like your son Jesus, and we ask it in his name, amen.